This is an ABC podcast. Hi, and welcome to Earshot. I'm Miyuki Okiranta, bringing you three stories today which explore brief encounters, chance meetings, and the fleeting nature of life. The priest was in a rush, so it all happened quick. We dropped red roses, they lowered him down as a plane erupted through the clouds and one of the straps broke. Just pretend I'm not here, what the gravedigger said as he jumped on the coffin, stomped it into place. Have you ever made a small, seemingly unimportant decision that turned out to have major consequences? Well, our first story today is about just that, A few years ago in the Adelaide Hills, a young man was delivering a pizza, but he got the address wrong. It was a very hot summer afternoon, I'm guessing about 38 degrees. Typical day, warm, which means being a pizza delivery boy is better than being the chef. I went out to start sanding this great big table down. It's an Oregon table made out of 100-year-old Oregon beams from the Port Adelaide wool stores. It was actually reasonably busy. Got a call to go out to Summertown and deliver a pizza. So jumped in the car, we went. But I was working in a set of overalls. When I got really hot and sweaty, I didn't either take my overalls off and I didn't bother to go and rehydrate myself. I was perspiring like the proverbial pig. In the hills, there's a lot of back roads and not a lot of numbers and occasionally there's a lot number, but that's not always the case either. So I was driving down this road, no numbers, but I just knew it was a house at the end of the road. And so I just kept going and I was covered with dust. And all of a sudden, quite suddenly, you know, I don't know what time it was, but around about, say, half past four, I could see the sun disappear. Feeling really dizzy and a bit tired. Came to the end of the road, there was two driveways. Didn't know which one was the right one and which is in the hills, you just pick one. If you get it wrong, so be it, you go to the next one. So I took the one on the left. I had no idea why I picked the one on the left. Just, just did. And I thought, oh, shit, I'm getting even dizzier. So I sat down. I said, I better sit down and just see if I can't get rid of this dizziness. Went down, fairly long way from the road and a long way from the main road as well. Just rocked up. Tried to knock on the door, no answer, which isn't uh, unusual. So I just walked back to my car, put the pizza on my roof, I think, and just walked around, noticed there was a balcony. And I thought, if I just put my head down a bit, I'll sort of stop feeling dizzy. And I don't know how long after that, but I think it was probably half to three quarters of an hour I woke up to the sounds of boots walking across gravel. So I walked up to the balcony on my way there, noticed there was a man lying in the garden, but lying in part of the garden that you wouldn't typically find a person in. And 
as I woke up and opened my eyes, I saw this young guy standing in front of me saying, like, what's wrong, what's wrong? I went up, tried to get this guy's attention. Wasn't doing anything, so went up, touched in, didn't move. I'm like, oh, okay, it's starting to get a little bit heart pumping. Rolled him over. Well, it's the first time I have sort of witnessed anything nearing death. And so all I saw was a, what looked to be like an elderly gentleman, very white, very, I couldn't tell if he was breathing or not. Uh, his eyes were open. And he told me later he was delivering a pizza. Luckily for me, he was delivering it to the wrong address because I hadn't ordered a pizza. So he, he woke me up, he put me in the trauma position, made me stay on my side and he, he said, kept saying to me, keep looking at me, talk to me, you have to stay awake, you have to stay awake. I don't know, just something kicked in and I just started acting. So dialed triple zero, uh, spoke to the ambulance, no number, so I tried to describe the gate, the one on the left at the end of the street. Got off the phone with them and managed to start getting some information out of him. Found out his name was Terry. Found out he had a wife called Maureen. He was starting to come around a little bit. I said, okay. I said, I, said, I don't know what's wrong, but I said, you'd better ring my wife and tell her that something's happening to me. I managed to get Maureen's phone number out of him. So I dialed Maureen. And he said, uh, I'm Jonathan and I'm just with your husband. I just found him face down. And I, th I think, Jonathan said, I think he's having a heart attack. I can never imagine what she felt like because here's this pizza delivery boy ringing him up saying, I found your husband on the ground. So she said, who is this? <laughs> she said, no, this, she thought this was someone at school, one of her students, having a go at her. And I'm like, no, no, not a joke. Your husband's Terry, you live here, you got Dalmatians, like, just some random things that obviously a prank caller wouldn't know. I think it settled in pretty quickly that I was being serious. She was in the city as well. So to come up to Summertown and then back down the ambulance, they'll probably drive straight past the ambulance. So I told her to go straight to the Royal Adelaide Hospital. The ambulance arrived. The ambulance uh, paramedics tried to find a pulse. They, in my hearing, they were saying, they're calling back to base, the ambulance base saying, we can't find a pulse. <laughs> we don't know what's happened to this man. We can't find a pulse. His face was long, droopy, none of his muscles were tight. And yeah, just ghostly white. I'll never forget how white he looked. And then a few minutes after, oh no, no, I think he's got a pulse of 12 now. He's got a pulse of 12. And uh, they said clearly, the man is having a major heart attack. You get him in the ambulance, we'll send the uh, the cardiac paramedic up in another ambulance and make a changeover at the Crayfish Exchange. He's not a small guy, like he's tall and pretty strong by the look of him. I, I must say I haven't wrestled the guy. But we got him up onto the bed and, and then we had to push him up the hill to the ambulance, which was 
challenging considering he was strapped to this machine and that machine, bottles of oxygen, there were IV drips, just everything. While the paramedics were getting him into the ambulance, I was just there like a, a human uh, coat rack with all these things hanging off me. I was taking the ambulance to the Crafts Exchange. The cardiac paramedic got on board with his cardiac gear. I got down to Adelaide. My wife came into the, as they took me off the ambulance and put me on a barouche. And then my daughter came in. She was crying. And I thought, how am I going to stop her crying or stop myself crying? <laughs> because otherwise I was going to burst into bloody tears. I, I, I said, well, what the hell are you blubbering about? I'm the one having a heart <laughs> so She just packed up and that solved, solved that little crisis. Anyway, I went up to the operating theatre for the, the specialist surgeon to put a stent in, as, a, as I understood. So he got talking to me on the operating theatre table and he said, OK, you can watch this. And I said, oh, excellent, I can watch it. I'll watch it up on the big screen. And then I obviously went out to it. After the ambulance drove off, I'm like, right, well, I've got this pizza, I better go deliver it. So I knocked on the house next door. Knock, knock. A lady and her children came out and I said, I'm so sorry, this pizza is so late. I've just been next door uh, helping a guy and he's had a bit of trouble and sort of explained it. And that was it, I just delivered the pizza, went back to the um, pizza shop. I woke up at about 10.30pm in the IC and then my wife was allowed to come in and see me and uh, she said, what are those big red marks on your chest? I said, I don't know. <laughs> no, are there any big red marks on my chest? And I found out later when the surgeon came in, he said, oh yes, we had to start your heart three times on the operating theatre and we had to start your heart three times in the ambulance before you got here. On a Friday night, you only have one or two delivery boys and you're, you're just firing out deliveries. You, you're taking three or four at a time on, on one run. And uh, it, it, it was a busy night. So my boss, I got back and my boss was like, where the hell have you been? What have you been doing? I've been trying to ring you. He gave Jonathan shit when he got back to the pizza place. Because he said, those people rang me about three times. You were late. Why were you late? And Jonathan said, I was helping this man I came across who'd had a heart attack. And he said, well, you shouldn't have. <laughs> you should have just delivered the pizza. I'm like, mate, I, I've had a hell of a ride being helping this bloke out, helping the paramedics. Just, honestly, at that stage, I was just in shock. I, I was just running on sort of autopilot, just trying to obviously then make up because there was a stack of God knows how many pizzas. So I just grabbed as many as I could and got out and just kept going. If Jonathan had taken the right drive and delivered the pizza, my body would have been lying there for another 24 hours until someone got home and found me if they came home that night. At the end of the night, I got back and the thing had quieted down, everyone was cleaning up and, and we started off on our little argument 
he thought I should have left as soon as the paramedics got there. And so we had a heated conversation for a little while and I just said, well, I, your attitude's ridiculous. And so I quit. I just, I just quit. I had a hundred percent blockage to the left ventricle. I would not have woken up. No more blood would have flowed into my heart. So I would not have woken up if I hadn't been woken up. So I'd have been dead as a dodo. My mum's a nurse and uh, she was actually out at a dinner. So I rang her, I said, this is what's happened. I went and saw her at her dinner and dragged her out and I think I had a cry on her, on her shoulder just because I, I don't know why I needed it. She was an emergency nurse at Women's and Children's so she's seen a few things and uh, so she helped me a lot. She settled me down, calmed me down and I, I ended up going to a friend's house and having a couple of beers, relaxing and going to bed after a, what ended up being an incredible night. Since I was a a good young Catholic man who had aspirations to a career in the priesthood. And since I ceased those aspirations and left any connection and became a fully fledged atheist, I have never considered that there is a person somewhere out there looking after me. I believe we all look after each other and that the universe, in a certain sense, looks after us and we are part of that. Oh, hell. I don't know. I'm not really a religious person. Like, I'm a, definitely a non-practicing Christian. I'm not sure if there was a higher power guiding me, but is it possible? Mm, definitely. One good friend of ours, she tells me, you must realise that God is looking out. You say, well don't give me any bullshit about God. Just because you're a fanatical religious person, don't try and make me believe it. But I mean, and she doesn't anymore, but she passionately believes that it was God who was looking after me. Yeah, just, I am thankful for the experience. I would have grown up a little that day. I was a bit of a terror before. It did highlight to me, I want to say the cliche how precious life is, but it, it sort of made death real for me. I have kept contact with Jonathan, the youth who, who saved my life. I have kept contact with him over a number of years. I was 62 when I had this heart attack. I'm now 68. When he rescued me and saved my life, he was a second year double degree student doing uh, economics and engineering and did it splendidly, uh, graduated and is now working as a civil engineer and for the last five years uh, we had an anniversary every year with uh, with Jonathan by, by going to various places and having a big pizza meal <laughs> and enjoying it. Terry's family has a very good sense of humour so we used to go to a pizza restaurant and catch up. It's, it's a time where we sort of celebrate the fact that we were lucky. In Delivery, we heard the voices of Jonathan Downs and the late Terry McEwen, recorded in 2014. 
Production was by Mike Ladd and Steve Fieldhouse, with original music by Steve Fieldhouse. This is Earshot. I'm Yuki Okiranta. Sometimes the chance or random nature of life reveals itself in sudden, shocking ways. This was the case for writer Sue Robinson while she was on holidays in Guatemala. Here's her story. His name was Roberto. His name was Roberto. We were never introduced. I knew him only in the intimacy of my lips on his. His flecked with pink foam, eyes open, fixed. I knew him in my hands on his bare chest, pressing in rhythm. My knees grazed on the gravel, arms aching. He lived in a village on the shores of the vast deep Lake Aratlan in the highlands of Guatemala. He swam with the other teenage boys, diving off the jetty. That day, he did not come up. Our boat arrives, the starting point for a day's bike ride through villages on the shores of the lake. His sister runs up and down the jetty screaming, begging for help. The villagers stand around, quiet. We see him lifted from the water. After a moment to take in what we're seeing, we leave cameras with our guide and, fumbling, uncertain, we settle into the rhythm. Hard to believe that this was real, that all the practice on dummies was now here in reality. This boy, this place. Keeping the rhythm as I'd been taught, twice through row, row, row your boat, equals 30 compressions. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Breathe. Breathe. Row, row, row your boat. Life is but a dream. Only, in a Guatemalan mountain village, no one realises you need an ambulance. I run to the jetty screaming for help as a boat pulls away. It doesn't stop. It's a 20-minute boat ride to Panahachel which pulses and throbs with the party of all parties, Holy Week in Guatemala. There is a hospital there. I'd seen an ambulance in the street. But Roberto lies still dressed in shorts and flecks of blood and wide open eyes, the only movement, our hands compressing his chest. A policeman arrives, but does nothing but move the crowd back a little. Row, row, row your boat. You can't revive anyone with CPR, only keep oxygen to the brain until help comes. No help comes. The villagers move us gently aside and carry him away to the village. We tried, I want to cry after them. We did all we could. We wanted to help. Shell-shocked, we decide to continue our ride, unwilling to head back to Party Central in Panahachel wanting to stay a little longer with those we have shared this shattering experience with. Halfway up the first hill, 
I get off my bike, huddle on the ground and cry. Hours later, over a Coke, you say, he was so young, and you cry. The next day, we kayak on the lake. With each dip of the paddle, I see Roberto floating in the water. Row, row, row your boat catches in my throat. I found the receipt for our bike ride among our mementos of the trip. I scrunched it in my hand. Of all the strangers I've met in my travels, I'll never forget Roberto, who I never knew. His name was Roberto, was written and read by Sue Robinson, produced by Claudia Taranto and Andrei Shabanov. It was first broadcast in 2014. And this is Earshot, where we're all about stories, documentaries and miniature tales, things to scratch that narrative itch. Our final story today comes from writer Mark Brandy with a tale of family, loss and the beauty of imperfection. Here's Transport. He came to our house with his wife and kids. They were from Melbourne. Everything was better there. Same as my dad, steel-eyed Italians, crisp slacks, iron shirts, leather loafers. He used to be blonde, eyes that were hazel. He looked different from us, our coffee eyes and blackened skin. Strange among our strangeness. He was from Rome. He worked on the trains. That's all I knew back then. At the kitchen table, talking work or politics, other things that were serious. He was smoking. He was always smoking. Ti piace banana? I frowned. You like these bananas? I was suddenly unsure. Yes? These bananas. He expressed a thick plume of blue smoke. These are good for you. Yes? I tried to peel it, but it wasn't ripe. I broke the end with my teeth. The starch bitterness curled my lips. He took another deep drag of his cigarette, eyed me suspiciously. You don't like me, do you? I looked at my mum, her perm and blue summer dress. I wish she would say something. I lowered my gaze. Yes, I do. He smiled just halfway, like he knew, stubbed out his cigarette. Life, it isn't perfect, you know. That's what he said to me. I was 10 years old. He lived in Broadmeadows. Me and my brother, we stayed there one time. The streets, cars with no wheels, strange mongrels on thick, rusty chains. The neighbours, like zombies, all out on front verandas. 
We watched the twilight zone in silence on a black and white TV. Our Zia made pancakes, too thick and full of sugar. I got homesick and cried for our dog. We didn't see him much. He was at work, checking the axles once the bodies were taken away. That was his job, but I didn't know that back then. Two weeks ago, first time in years, the last time too. Like a small bird laid sideways on the bed, gasping for breath. Mozia tried to feed him a syringe of pureed food. There were no machines, no flashing lights, just nurses who turned him over. Before I left, I went to him, his pale eyes locked in some distant, serious concern. And I told him something. His funeral was in West Melbourne, St Mary, Star of the Sea. Same church he got married in. They fought like stray cats till they got divorced, for a while after too. The priest was a Spaniard, talked of prayers and confession, of hell and of heaven. My zeal was an atheist. The burial was in Sunbury, a tiny cemetery out past the airport, miles from anywhere. In a dense, sticky moment before summer, we were all bad suits and polycotton shirts. Planes thundered on descent, so loud and so close you could almost touch them. The earth shook violently beneath our feet, and I'm sure we all wondered the same thing. The priest was in a rush, so it all happened quick. We dropped red roses, they lowered him down as a plane erupted through the clouds and one of the straps broke. Just pretend I'm not here, what the grave digger said as he jumped on the coffin, stomped it into place. In the car park we gathered, shifting feet, bad sunglasses, unsure how to leave. I told Mazia it was a good service It didn't go perfect, she said. I kissed both her cheeks. He wouldn't expect that. Another plane boomed through the sky. I looked up this time, watched its steep descent. All that violent, beautiful disruption of departure and arrival. Transport. Written and read by Mark Brandy. With production by Jess Beneff, Joe Wallace and Judy Rapley. It's part of our Pocket Docs collection of mini audio features from 2016. And this has been Earshot. Join me, Miyuki Okiranta, next time for more Journeys in Sound.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.